Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Well, good morning, family. Uh, If we have not met yet, I hope to meet you. My name is Jason, and it is my great privilege and pleasure to be able to teach you this morning from God's Word. Uh, We are in a series recently called We Are, and I'm, uh, in case you're not aware of this, Joe Ryer uh, is on vacation right now. He's in Florida. I would not be surprised if he's watching live from Florida right now through the camera. So hi, Joe. But I'm a little mad at Joe because he's been taking all of the good titles in this series. He took part one, part two, part three, and last week he took part four. So I decided I would come up with something new and fresh and exciting, and so this week is called part five. Yes, part five. I thought about, I actually thought about calling today's part six just a mess with next week's guy, but I thought I'd stick to part five. No, in reality, this, uh, this week's message has a better title than part five, um, but it comes with a little bit of a story. Do you, were you paying attention? What was the first thing I said to you this morning? I got up and said, good morning, family, right? So I attended a church for a long time that had one guy who did the announcements every single week. Oh, that reminds me. I'm supposed to do a clarification about the announcements. So pause for a moment. This has nothing to do with the message. The clarification on the announcements is the only people who need to register for Equipped are those who need childcare. If you're just coming to Equipped and you're not sending anyone to childcare, you don't need to register for Equipped. Just show up. Everybody got that? Okay, back to the message. So we attended a church for a long time where the same guy did announcements week after week after week. His name, really nice guy. His name was Rich Green, and he would stand up at the podium every single week and start by saying, good morning, family. And all of us would say, good morning, Rich. And so it was just like this thing. It happened for years and years and years. And while it was this nice little exchange, there was some real truth in just that little kind of normal thing that we took for granted. Good morning, family. Good morning, Rich. Because what is a family? If we think about what a family is, technically a family is someone, is a group of people who share a common ancestor. So if we're talking like cousins, they share a grandparent, right? Uh, siblings, I've got a bunch of siblings, we share common parents, right? So that's, that's your family. And so here's Rich, and now I'm standing up here saying to you, good morning, family. Why can I say that rightly? Because while there are people in, most of you have no biological connection to me, we are still family because we share a common parent. And that brings us to today's real actual title, which is part five, We Are the Children of God. So in the We Are series, we've looked at several different things. Today, we're going to explore what it means to be God's children. So can we pray first, and then we'll get going with this. Father, I am so thankful to you, Lord, that you give us good things. And Father, I come to you now as I prepare to teach. 
Lord, I know that you are very well acquainted with my weaknesses. So I ask you, Lord, that where I am weak, you would meet me with your strength. Father, I know that I can be forgetful, but I ask, Lord, that you would bring to my remembrance the things that you would have our church here this morning, that you would have me here. And Father, uh, I ask for this group of people assembled here, myself included, that you would unstop our ears and help us to hear and be changed by the truth of your word this morning as we learn what it means to have you as our Father, to be called rightly your children. Lord, help us with this. We need your help. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've been investigating who we are. That's been the series. So why have we been doing that? Well, first of all, before we did this, most of you probably remember that we did a series called Who Is This Man? from January up to Easter. And we were exploring the most important question, the who do you say that I am question, the who is Jesus question. And we spent that time and came to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of the living God. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament. And now we're looking at who we are, and that question is critically connected. It is inseparable from the question of who Jesus is. If we don't know who Jesus is, if we don't have that answer solidified in our mind, then we're kind of spinning our wheels asking the next question, who are we? Because the reality is if we're not in Christ, the answer to who are we is a very different answer than it is if we are in Christ. We need to keep in mind today with a laser focus, and I'm going to remind you of this again and again and again. We need to remember that we have none of the things that we've been talking about the past couple of weeks. We are none of the things that we've been talking about the past couple of weeks apart from Christ. Think about this. <clears throat> the question I asked was, why, why are we even exploring this, this question? Who are we? The answer is so that we can love God, so that we can enjoy Him, so that we can serve and obey Him in a way that brings more pleasure to us in Christ and thereby more glory to Him. If we know who we are, it should affect the way we think and behave and act, right? Galatians 6.14 says this, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So thinking back about what we've talked about the past couple of weeks, think about this. We are not his people. We are not a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We are not a holy nation. We are not able to be called God's own people. We are not his witnesses. We are not the body of Christ. We are not loved and forgiven. New creations <clears throat> with new eyes and a spiritual appetite. We are not reconciled, and we are not his ambassadors. We are none of these things. 
without the person and work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have nothing to boast in apart from what he has done. So as we're looking back on what we learned and as we're hearing what we're going to hear today and as we're looking forward to completing this series in the weeks to come, we need to remember that scripture and keep in mind that that scripture does not tell us that we're not allowed to boast. It doesn't mean no boasting. It means that we are allowed to boast, but we're only allowed to boast in one thing, and that is the cross of Christ. And so today, even though our topic is about the children of God, being the children of God, I'm going to point you back to that as often as possible. We need to boast only in the cross of Christ, because in that work that he did there, that's how we find who we are. Amen? So, we're remembering who we are. We also need to remember that we were, those of us who are in Christ, we were at some point something much, much different. Paul was speaking to the Corinthian churches, and um, he goes through this big, long list of sins that they were involved in and types of sinners that were found in this church, and, he, and he's going through this, this kind of exhaustive list of some pretty horrible things, and he says to them, such were some of you. And we need to remember that even though while in Christ we are not that now, we have been given his righteousness, we need to remember that we were that. We were that. And now we're something very, very different. And that brings me to kind of a point I want to clear up before we get too far into this message. There's a misconception about the children of God that I think we kind of need to lay as a foundation before we go any further. And even if you are not having any sort of problems with this misconception, you're probably going to run into people who have this confusion. So it'd be good just to discuss it. And the, the misconception is that we're all God's children. Everyone is God's children. Well, the reality is humans are not all God's children. We're not. And there are, we could go on for a long time about the theological misimplications, if that's even a word, of that phrase. But when I was thinking about it, I kind of thought that there are sort of two camps that that statement falls into as far as justifying that we're all God's children. And the first incorrect justification is that regardless of what God you serve, regardless of what God people serve all around the world— that all of those gods are just the same. That they're just different names for the same God. And therefore, it doesn't really matter what God you're serving. It doesn't matter what God you're worshiping. You're really, ser- you're really worshiping God, and therefore you're God's children. I kind of did a quick, I thought it was going to be quick, Google search of like, deities that people worship. And man, there are zillions. I mean, I, I started writing a few down, but it's not even worth getting started on the list because there are so many that people all around the world worship, and they're, they're not all the same, okay? In fact, the Bible makes this very clear and can debunk that myth really simply in 2 Timothy 2.5, or was it 1 Timothy 2.5? Is this the one that I, I think I put down the wrong Timothy? But either way, it says this, For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, 
the man Christ Jesus. There is only one. So if you're serving the God of the Bible, you are serving the living God, the one God. If you're serving any other God by any other name, it's not true that you're serving the same God. So we'll debunk that myth. The other one is this, and this one I kind of get. I don't think it's right, but I sort of understand why people think this. A lot of people think, well, we're all God's children because God made all of us. And the reason I get that is because that's true. God did make all of us. There are plenty of people who don't believe that God made all of us, but that doesn't change the fact that it's true. I'm, I'm holding in my hand this device that's called an iPad, and it's made by a company named Apple. I can believe from the bottom of my heart, I can believe with every fiber of my being that Apple does not exist, that the company Apple does not exist, and therefore this device came into existence just by chance or by some sort of process that I don't understand, but there's no Apple, and Apple didn't make this. It doesn't matter that I believe that. It's still true that Apple, Apple built this thing, all right? And on the flip side of that, I can believe that Apple did make this, but then it's not correct to then assume that Apple owns this because the reality is something happened that changed the ownership of this device. Apple built it, it was theirs, but then they put it in a store and I bought it. Actually, that's not true. Someone bought it for me, but someone bought it <laughs> and gave it to me. So something happened to change the ownership of this device. It did belong to Apple. It doesn't anymore. It belongs to me. So being made by God does not act automatically make us his because something happened to change that reality. And that thing happened in a person, namely Adam. So Adam's an interesting guy. <clears throat> There's a really interesting passage, I think, about Adam that can be found in Luke so Adam is the first man, right? The man that God created. And there's a little passage in Luke 3 that we might miss. It's one of those super edifying passages that I'm just kind of kidding because sometimes if you're like me, when we read the scriptures, we see a passage like this and we just kind of breeze over it and get to the more interesting part, what we think is the more interesting part. It goes like this. I'm going to just read from Luke 3, starting in verse 36 to 38. This actually starts in verse 23. So you have to go way back to the beginning. But it goes like this, starting in verse 36. The son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, that's a mouthful. The son of Canaan, again, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So, true confession, how many people have gotten to that spot in Luke and they skip right over it? You know, like I've done that a whole bunch of times. You get to the big genealogy, you're like, you know what, I'm just going to go to chapter four. All right? <laughs> I'm sure we've all done that at some point, but if you, if you read that, you catch something really interesting. 
the son of, the son of, the son of, it gets to Adam and it says, the son of God. Adam was the son of God. Why can we say that? Well, because Adam was created perfectly. He was created, and Eve also created in the image of God, without sin. Unlike any of us, because they were created in God's image perfectly, but they fell, and sin entered the world. So now you take that genealogy and you work backwards from Adam, the son of God, and every other person in that list, until you get to Jesus at the top, is it was born after the fall of man, the son of someone who was already in sin and fallen. Perfect Adam, the image of God, can be called God's son. Imperfect, all the rest of us, can't be called that automatically. Because of Adam's sin, something happened, just like something happened to change the ownership of this iPad from apples to mine. Something happened to change the standing of humans as the sons of God to not. And something then has to take place for us to be able to be called the children of God. Something has to reset that. And that brings us to the most important thing that really we can talk about as a church. Ron, was just remi- Ron Eshelman was just reminding me of this this morning, and I was so thankful for it, that we come together as a church every Sunday and we learn from the Word, and we learn things that build each other up. We learn things that build ourselves up. But really, we can't lose sight of our mission as a church, which is to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all, whether in this room, whether you had a good relationship with her or not, we all had a mother. Whether you had a good relationship with him or not, we all had a father. We're all here because we had parents. So we were born in this line, just like we see in Luke. And that means that we were born after the fall. And the scriptures make it very clear that we must all be born again. We must be born a second time. Jesus said this himself in John 3. Truly, truly I say to you, he said, speaking to Nicodemus, unless one is born again a second time, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the gospel, the good news of Jesus is preached. We have a responsibility to respond to it, but it is God who causes us to be born again. We're born of the flesh. We must be born again of the Spirit. And that is the thing that resets us, that resets us out of that big, long genealogy of being born of the flesh back to being born of the Spirit of God and being able to be called the children of God. It's the thing that changes our ownership. It's the thing that gives us that common ancestry that we talked about right at the beginning. It's why we as a family can look and see that we have a common father because we've been born again. 
because of the goodness of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to remind you over and over and over again that as we look at that reality, for those of us who are in Christ, that is something that we cannot boast in of ourselves. Our boast this morning and every day needs to be only in the cross of Christ. Even in that verse that we read, very famous verse, John 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, we see kind of like the, the nugget, the implication that being born again means that we're children because children are born, right? So if we're born again of the Spirit of God, that implies that we are God's children. Now, I want to, this isn't really part of the message, but I just want to point this out because I don't want to hurt anybody while we're sharing something really great. I know that there are those of us, my family included, in this room who have children who were never born. I'm not suggesting by this language in in the Gospel of John that children are only your children if they're born. Some of us have children who are waiting for us to meet someday that we never got to meet because they didn't make it to being born. And, And I'm not implying that those aren't your children. I'm also not implying there are those of us in this room who have children in our households right now who came to us in a different kind of way. They came through adoption. And those are our children also. So I'm not implying that being born is the only way that God sees as like officially being the child of someone. Not at all. I'm only suggesting that I think Jesus was very intentional about using the words born again. You must be born again because right away in those words, there's the reality that that, when that happens, there's a connection of child to parent. Amen? Does that make sense? Okay. Good. In 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is referred to by Paul as the second Adam. Adam was created in perfection. Jesus came into the world perfectly. 100% God, 100% man. The difference between him and Adam is that Jesus was perfect all the way. 30-some years on this earth, and he never one time sinned. He did not sin in his body. He did not sin with his mouth. He did not sin in his mind. Isn't that (laughs) mind-blowing? I mean, I think of the things that in my life have gone on inside my brain, even the ones that I haven't acted on. And Jesus never sinned even in his mind. He was perfect all the way until he willingly gave his life on the cross. And so why am I spending so much time on this? This message is about the children of God. Why am I spending so much time on the gospel and the cross of Christ? Because here's the thing. Looking at our standing as God's children is important. But it's going to have no impact on the way we live, the, the decisions we make the things we choose to do on a daily basis, it's going to have no impact on establishing our priorities. It's not going to affect the things we say. It's not going to change the way we react to the Holy Spirit. It's not going to do any of those things if it's just head knowledge because we've forgotten that it's all a gift 
based on the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished at the cross. We've got to remember as we go through this today that this statement is true. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You have been made alive. You have been born again. You have been born of flesh. You've been born a second time in Christ Jesus. And that changes everything. It's, it's mind-boggling, but it's Im- and, and it's mind-boggling in a way that we're going to need to focus on it really for the rest of our lives until we see him face to face. We're going to need to focus our brains on that all the time. But we want to really try hard to focus on that today so that this whole standing of the, as being the children of God starts to make sense and really has an impact. So let's remember that. Can we agree on that? Okay, I promise you that if you forget, I'll remind you a lot of times. Let's boast only in the cross of Christ. So we're going to look at three questions today. I like to, when I'm trying to teach, I like to establish a couple of questions and then try to go about answering those questions, hopefully adequately. And the first question is this, why has God made us his children? Why has God made us his children? We sang a line in a song today. Uh, The song was, how deep the Father's love for us. And in the last verse, there's a line that says, why should I gain from his reward? That's basically the same question that we're asking. Why has God made us, us his children? Why would he do it? I mean, he's God. He could do things any way he wants. Adam fell. He created Adam perfectly. Adam sinned. He could have left us there, but he didn't. And by the way, before we're too hard on Adam, we're pretty good at sinning ourselves too. So let's not, <laughs> let's not be too rough on Adam. So um, our main text for today, I think, is where we're going to find some of the answers to these questions. And, and if you're a note taker, write this down because our main text is 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28. I'm going to go to the end of that chapter and then the beginning of chapter 3, through verse 3. So 1 John 2, 28 through 3, 3. And it says this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we will know, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So reminder number one to stay focused on the cross of Christ. We can only be called this. This is only applicable to us. John is writing to people who have been saved, who have been born again. And if that applies to you, it's only because God paid a huge price. He gave his only perfect son. It was a gigantic price. 
And the text says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. A paraphrase of that sentence would kind of be like, can you even believe it? Can you even imagine, can you wrap your head around the kind of love it would take for God who's perfectly holy to love us so much who are really not that he would even call us his children. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 and 5 says kind of the same thing. But it says it like this. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The answer to the question, why has God made us his children, is simple and it's gigantic. The answer is because he loves you. He loves you. He loves you in a way that is unfathomable. It's unmeasurable. Joe taught this. I can't remember if it was last week's message or the week before, but Joe in this series taught that we are in Christ loved and forgiven. So we've established this. If if you missed that message, go back and find it on the website. But God loves us. That's why he's made us his children. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about that today since Joe already talked about it, but I do want to mention it because there are many many, many attempts during your life, probably every day, in which someone is trying to convince you that that's not true, that you're not loved, that you're not forgiven. Most of you are probably familiar with Romans 8 verse 1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I'm sure you know this, but let me tell you that the enemy, while there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the enemy will never give up trying to convince you that there is. He's a liar. He's going to take every opportunity he can to convince you that you are not loved and you are actually condemned, which isn't true. Someone showed me an example many, many years ago. Do you ever have like, do you ever go to a, a, a church meeting or sit in a sermon where one little thing happens? It may not have even been the focus of the teaching, but one little thing happens and it just sticks in your brain for the rest of your life. Like it's just so effective and so helpful to you. It may not have been important to anybody else, but for you, it was like that thing. Well, th- this example was that for me. It stuck with me for years and years and years. And I'm going to pick on Chris Eckenrode. Come up here, Chris. I asked Chris before we started today if I could use him as an example because I needed someone who was thick-skinned because I'm going to yell at Chris. All right? You can stand right here and just kind of like look somber or something, okay? Um, (laughs) So Chris stands here as a child of God. He is loved and forgiven, and I'm going to play the part of the enemy right? So I'm going to look at Chris as his enemy, the liar. I'm the liar for a moment here. And I'm going to say, Chris, 
you screwed up again. You've been told so many times not to sin in that way, but you screwed it up again. Do you really think that you could possibly be a good father to your children? Who do you think you are thinking that you could serve in this church? God doesn't want people like you serving in this church. And you really think you can be a loving husband? Your wife's probably embarrassed of you. You're a sinner. You, you're probably not even a Christian. Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? I'm really sorry, Chris. That kind of was uncomfortable. Okay, stay here. I'm not done with you. <laughs> Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Where the enemy kind of just like rails on you about all of the things that are horrible in your life? But here's the thing, that's not the part of the example that all those years ago affected me and stuck with me. Because the reality is when, when Satan is like aggressively being like in our minds, yelling at us, telling us how awful we are, I feel like that's kind of not as effective of a strategy. I kind of see through that more often than not. Because I have the truth of the scriptures that when it's that obvious, it's easy for me to see. But what about, sorry, i got to take my notes with me. I've got my things to pick on Chris about notes here. Um, what about when Satan does it, does it like this? He stands real close to you and says, I saw what you did, Chris. You never do it right. No matter how many times you've screwed it up, you never get it right. You can't do it. You may as well just Stop trying. God doesn't love you. You don't belong to him. You may as well just do whatever you want because you're going to screw it up anyway. Doesn't that, isn't that a little more painful? Okay. Thanks, buddy. None of those things I said were true. <laughs> if you didn't hear it, Chris said, I'm so glad I came to church today. Yeah. <laughs> really being built up right now. No. Isn't isn't it kind of like like for me those are the kind of those are the kind of lies that get me. The ones that are so subtle that I think they're my own thoughts. And being humans when we think that they're our own thoughts, we tend toward thinking that they're wise and wonderful thoughts. They must be true because they're my thoughts. Right? So when the lies of Satan come like that, it's way more effective. But God, your Father, if you are in Christ, wants you to have this established in your mind today that he loves you so much that when you belonged to the enemy who lies to you, he instead paid a huge price to make you his child because he loves you. He loves you. While we were dead in our trespasses, when we were sinners, he loved us with a love that's so great. See what kind of love the Father has for us. It's such a great love that we can be called his children. Let us ponder that. And where is our boast? in Christ, in the cross of Christ, because there was nothing in us that was worth being boastful, that God would want to look at us and say, I want that one to be my child, my child because 
he or she is great in all of these ways. No, there was nothing. It's all because of the cross of Christ. So why did he make us his children? Because he loved us. The next question. What are God's children like? If you sit here this morning in Christ, you are God's child. So what should you be like? Well, for one thing, we're all different from each other. Molly Van Horn is different from Dave Smith, both Dave Smiths, all right? And both Dave Smiths are different from Kim Hartle. And Kim Hartle is different from Rodney Allshouse. And Rodney Allshouse is different from everyone. (laughs) Sorry, Rodney. All right. But in one really, really important way, we're all exactly the same. And that is we are all, if we are a child of God, we are all progressing toward the same likeness. We're all moving in the same direction. We're moving toward being made into the image of Christ. And we can follow kind of a logical path, a logical deduction to see that that is true. So, for example, in Romans 8, 28 through 30, it says this. And we know, excuse me while I grab some water, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's kind of weird to drink in front of people. It's like you got to take a swallow and you're all waiting for me, watching me swallow. It's, it's weird. Um, anyway, there's a lot of goodness in that passage, okay? If, aside from our topic today, you should take that section right there, those three verses, and read that about 100,000 times between now and the time you go home to be with Jesus because that's packed full with incredible stuff. But, but did you catch that phrase, to be conformed to the image of his son. That is what we are. That's what's happening to us, those who are in Christ. So that's great. We're being built into being like Jesus. But what does that mean? We need to follow the the logical path here another step to see even what that means. The beginning of Hebrews says this, first two and a half verses or so. Says long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, this Son that he's talking about, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That text is so rich. I just love reading Hebrews because it's this rich, rich language. But there was another phrase that was in there that was really important. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. 
So if we are being made into the image of Christ, and Christ is the exact imprint of, his, of the nature of his Father, then we can kind of take this and say that we, as the children of God, to just kind of put it simply, we're like our daddy. We're being made more like our daddy every day. Most of you know I have five children. My oldest son, my oldest child is Henry. He's 14. And when I was his age and and younger, my mother used to say to me, when you're grown up, I hope you get a kid just like you. Has anyone ever heard that from their parents? <laughs> My older brother used to say that to me too. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that their prayer was answered. Okay, Henry is a lot like me. He is not an exact imprint of my nature. We are not exactly the same. But I can tell you that I see things in him from the time he was born till now that I remember seeing and experiencing in myself. Good and bad, okay? And so Henry, whether he's trying to or not, just because we're, we're in the same family and because we spend a lot of time around each other, he's like his daddy. And, and hear this. I, I hope you don't take this the wrong way because I don't mean this in any arrogant kind of way. I think this is what all of us who are parents are trying to do with our children. In some ways, I want him and my other children to be conformed to my image and conformed to the image of my wife. I want them to be like us. Not because I think that we're like fabulously wonderful, but just because there are things that the Lord has grown and cultivated in us by the grace of God, not because of our own doing. There are gifts that he has given us that I want to give to my children, that the Lord hasn't given to them directly other than through our parenting. So I want him to be conformed to my image. And I think that's what we do as parents, so we can kind of understand what that process is like. Now that we're the children of God, we are being conformed to be like him. And our text supports this. It says this, The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. If the world had known him, they would easily see that we are becoming like him. They would recognize him in us. Oh, you must belong to the living God because you're, you're becoming like him. I know what he's like, and you're, you're getting more and more like him every day. That's the implication. And did you also catch the phrase? It says, what we will be. What we will be has not yet appeared. Will be means that there's a progression happening. It's guaranteed. We're going to be progressing into his image, and that progression is working toward a finish line. And it's a beautiful finish line, because what was the finish line? We shall be like him. Isn't that a wonderful hope? 
when we think about the ways that we have failed and we do continue to screw up things on a regular basis, that the Lord says, there is a progression. You are being faithfully taken along in this growth toward being like Jesus, and you will be like him. Reminder, like number 10 or 15 by now. As we progress along that path, let us not boast in the things that we see being built into us. They are not things that we accomplish on our own. Let our boast only be in the cross of Christ. Let the things that the world sees in us as we are changed to be more like our Father be those things that bring glory to the Father, not to us. So why did he make us his children? Because he loved us. What are God's children like? We're like our Father. We're becoming more like our Father all the time. Last question. What do God's children do? What do God's children do? Well, we could spend about the next 300 hours talking about all the things that we as called believers in Jesus, those who find ourselves in Christ because we've been born again, we could go for a long, long time talking about the things that the Lord wants us to do. But let's just pull some things out of this text from today. The first one is this, God's children abide in him. It was the very first thing that was in our text today. The very first statement. Now, little children, abide in him. But the reality is to make sense of that, you've got to go back a couple of verses that were not really part of our main text today, because even though that starts our passage, it's kind of like the conclusion of a previous passage. So we said, and now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. That was 1 John 2.28. But if you go back four verses to 1 John 2.24, it says this, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So what John is saying here is to abide in him, which he tells us to do in verse 28, we need to let what we heard from the beginning abide in us. Well, what's that? What did we hear from the beginning? What was this thing, this message that we heard in the beginning that we need to be focused on and let it abide in us. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's the cross of Christ. If we are to abide in him, then what we need to do with habitual regularity is to make a, an intentional point of staying focused on the cross of Christ, the gospel of Jesus, the good news that we were saved even though we were dead and that a perfect son of God gave his life to purchase us for himself. 
That's the message. That's what we stay focused on. If we want to abide in him, and, and believe me, there are other ways that we could interpret that, and they're all good. We could say we need to abide in him, and that means we need to spend time in his word. And that's true. It's good. We should spend time in his word. We could say we need to abide in him, and that means making sure that you're spending time in prayer and speaking to the Lord and, and listening for the promptings of the Holy Spirit. That's true. It's good. But what John is telling us here is to abide in him means to not lose focus on the cross of Christ. To let that and that only be our boast. Because without it, we have nothing. So that's one way, that's one thing that God's children do. They abide in him. Here's another one. God's children purify themselves. God's children purify themselves. At the very end of our passage today, sorry, I've got to go way up here and find it. It says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who thus hopes in him. What does that mean? Well, 2 Timothy 4.8 says this, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What is the hope that we have? The hope that we have is that there is a day coming when all of mankind, every human being that has ever lived and ever will live, is going to stand before the Lord for judgment. And we have the hope that on that day, we who are in Christ, are going to be found righteous. Not because of our works, but because of His works. Because of who He is. So what's John talking about? John knows this. John knows. He hasn't forgotten that our righteousness comes from Christ. But I think what he's saying is this. If we will be found righteous then, if that is our hope, if we know that we're going to be found righteous on that day because of Jesus, then let us be righteous now. Let us practice it now. The text points again to that progress toward the finish line. And everyone who thus hopes in him, okay, we're progressing toward that hope, purifies himself as he is pure. And in doing so, now listen, this one, you got to be careful. In saying that, he has given us, the children of God, he has given us a way to recognize each other. He's given us a way to know each other. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now here's why you got to be careful about that. It's true. It's true that we can look at this and recognize each other as we see each other progressing toward the image of Jesus. But my wife and I have a saying that we've used for many, many years. I don't know when we started saying it. <laughs> um, it's everybody, everybody's in a place. Everyone's in a place. The place that I'm in is not the same place that you're in. There are people I've met who are far beyond me in my walk with Jesus. And I look at that person and I think, I really don't want that person 
to make decisions about who I am or who I am not in Christ based on my comparison with them because I'm nothing like them. I'm not there yet. And in the same way, I don't want to do that to other people. I don't want to look at someone else and say, okay, well, that person is way back farther on the progression line than I am. So I'm, I'm doubtful whether they're even saved. I'm doubtful whether they're in Christ. That may be true or that may be not. But I'm not sure that we can know that. So here's what I would recommend instead. Instead of being quick to determine whether someone's standing is in Christ or not, let us take this knowledge that we can recognize each other as God's children. And when we see someone struggling, let's come alongside them. Let's put our arm around them and help them. Let's, like the friends of Moses, let's hold up their arms and support them and encourage them. Let's remind them, let's remind them of that message that they heard from the beginning. There's nothing wrong with going back to what we heard from the beginning. Remember the cross of Christ. Remember that we are saved because of his work, not our own. And in doing so, we can point people to the cross of Christ again, and we can boast in that cross together. Amen? So I just want to close by telling you a story, because I, I, love, I love stories. I love particular kinds of stories. And uh, I'm going to give you kind of a Cliff Notes version of a story and I got to warn you ahead of time, if you have not read this, I'm about to give you major spoilers, all right? So uh, the story I'm referring to is a book called The Horse and His Boy. And Eric Huff gets a big smile on his face. I love it. The Horse and His Boy. And uh, it's a beautiful story. And it's, there are several important characters in it, but kind of the main character is a young boy named Shasta. And Shasta lives a very, very hard life. He lives with just his father, but his father is more of a slave driver than a father. Shasta is treated terribly. He is not loved by his father. And so when he is given an opportunity to escape his life, he takes it. And he's out of there. And he runs off. And through a lot of adventures and uh, misadventures, you know, all kinds of things that, that, by the way, you see throughout the story that while Shasta's experiencing these things, that the Lord is there helping him and guiding him and protecting him, even though he's completely unaware of it. But he goes through this process, and in the process, he finds out that he's not who he thought he was. Right? He finds out that his father, the slave driver, is not actually his father. In fact, Shasta finds out that his name isn't even Shasta. It's Prince Kor because he's the son of a for real king. All right? So Shasta comes to this re realization that this whole life that I've been le leading is not real. I'm actually the son of a king. I'm a prince. 
Well, what's the lesson in that? Because here's the lesson for us. In the last little portion of the book, they don't, you don't go on and on and on about this. You kind of just have to realize that there's, there's going to be a, a story after the story ends. But as Shasta starts to realize that he's the king's son, he realizes that that comes with some implications that he never would have imagined. First of all, he has a lot of good gifts. His life is very, very different. He's provided for very, very well. All right? He has things that he did not earn. They were just given to him because he is the son of a king. And he starts to see the family resemblance, right? He looks around at all these people that he never knew before. He looks at his king, the father, and he starts to see, oh yeah, I'm a part of this family. I can see it. Then he finds out that he's got responsibilities because as the son of a king, he is expected to behave in a certain way. He's expected to lead. He's expected to learn. He's expected to grow. He's expected to fight. All right? All of these things his eyes are getting opened to as he realizes who he is. And uh, before I forget, the worship team can come on up. Shasta's going through this, well, I should say Prince Kor, because that's who he becomes, who he finds out he is. He's go, his eyes are being opened to the things that are expected of him and the things that he's called to do and the things that he has because he's the son of a king. But here's the beautiful thing for us, because we're like that too. We're like him too. The beautiful thing is that we are equipped to do the things that the Lord expects us to do. He tells us to do something, and then he gives us the gifts to do it. And they're gifts. They were purchased at the cross. Our salvation was purchased there, and everything that, every good thing that we've received as we walk this walk, progressing toward the image of Christ, is a gift from the Lord. So, let us, as the children of God, boast in only one thing. Let us boast together in the goodness of the Father and in what he accomplished for us at the cross. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful to you, Lord. We are so thankful for your son, Jesus. We are thankful for what he willingly accomplished on the cross and what that purchased for us, Father. We are so thankful that you are a good father, and we are so thankful that we can rightly call you our father. Lord God, we love you. We know, we are convinced from your scripture that you love us and we give you thanks for it today in Jesus' name. Amen.